We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I want to talk about Roe v. Wade one more time, and the Supreme Court's decision, but specifically the left's response when they try to use the Bible to support their point or to refute those they disagree with. These people don't even understand the book that they're trying to use. And they also don't understand logic very well. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning, and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you so much for listening into the show. For those of you who listen on a routine basis, thank you for your loyalty. And by the way, I haven't done this in a long time on the show, so let me do a little housekeeping. If you would like to subscribe to The Rebellion and be a supporter of what we do on a daily basis financially, I obviously welcome that. And you can do so by going to patreon.com backslash Dr. Everett Piper. That's patreon.com backslash D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. I've said repeatedly on the show in previous episodes that I don't do this every day just to hear myself talk. It does involve quite a little bit of work. I try to give you all something that's different and fresh, something that's worth spending 27 minutes of your time. That's usually what the episode comes out to be. Um, something that is uh, uh, at least different enough that it would give you a little bit more information, a little bit more fodder to engage in the market score of ideas, another arrow in your quiver, if you will, as you go about doing doing life, uh, give and take, debate, dialogue, conversation with people that you live with and work with as you decide how to vote, for example. Uh, I'm trying to give you information that would be helpful. It's called it's called the market square of ideas. Uh, when I studied under Chuck Colson, he tried to prepare us to engage in culture, to not disengage, but to engage as thoughtful human beings, as Christian thinkers. You, you, you have a responsibility to be salt and light. Jesus charged us with that. Be salt to a culture that's rotting and light to a dark world. And you can't do that if you, quote-unquote, hide your light under a bushel. You have to get up out, out of the easy chair, get up off the lazy boy or off the couch, and actually go do something. So I'm trying to help you with that. So hopefully I am, and if you want to support that, by going to patreon.com backslash D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R, I obviously welcome it. Thank you. So today, what do I want to talk about? I'd, I'd like to talk about what I believe is not just a political issue, but one that's more time-tested than that. I'd like to talk about biblical exegesis, okay? And I'll tell you what that means in a second. And uh, logic, okay? Socratic logic. Now, we've touched on these things in the past, but we, we stumble across these things every day when people respond to the Roe v. Wade decision on Twitter, online, uh, Facebook, Parler, MeWe, whatever their social media platform is, you see some responses that are solid. You see other responses that, frankly, 
are irrelevant. They make no sense. And I'm going to talk about a couple of those things today. Uh, it, it, they're called non sequiturs, fallacies of non sequence. It's the so what fallacy. For example, I was told that one person uh, was angry about the Roe v. Wade decision and apparently um, in, a, in a shot, an attempted shot at evangelicals said something about when evangelicals get rid of their LED screens and stuff like that, then uh, they have a right to speak up on this issue. But until they do that and start taking that money that they're wasting on, I guess their technology is the point, then I'm not going to listen to them when it comes to their opinion on the sanctity of human life. Well, my first reaction to that is, so what if somebody has an LED screen, a flat screen, has an item of technology? So what if they spend money on that? That has absolutely nothing to do whether, with the question as to whether or not it's moral to kill another human being. <laughs> if Dietrich Bonhoeffer was spending more money than you think he should have been spending on his clothes, for example, every picture I've seen of him, he's very well-dressed. Well, would you say that until Dietrich Bonhoeffer stops spending money on expensive suits, he doesn't have any right to challenge the Nazi regime for its extermination of millions and millions of Jews? I mean, of course, the way he dresses or the amount of money he spends on his clothing is irrelevant to the moral issue in play here, and that is the question as to whether or not another human being should be killed just because you don't like them. You don't like the way they look, you don't like their age, you don't like the inconvenience that they're causing to your personal lifestyle, or you're going to blame them for the problems of the world, which was the case with uh, the Nazis as it related to the Jews. The Jews were responsible for the, all that ailed Germany, so let's just go kill them. I mean, that's the kind of attitude that, that, uh, that was prevailing in the German culture at the time, and uh, that was the attitude of the Third Reich. Uh, people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer came into the mix and challenged it, are you going to dismiss Dietrich Bonhoeffer's moral questions, moral objections to um, the swastika and all that it represented just because he's spending too much money on something? I mean, that is, that's asinine. That makes no sense. So that would be an example of a fallacy, a non sequitur, a fallacy that is a non sequitur of non sequence. Again, the way I would describe it, it is the so what fallacy. So what if Dietrich Bonhoeffer spends twice as much money on his suits than he should? That has nothing to do with the moral question of human life. And likewise, in this case, with abortion. So what if an evangelical has an expensive LED screen, or an expensive car, or an expensive suit, or lives in a house that you think is too big? Uh, first of all, you might want to look in the mirror and evaluate how you spend your own money before you start pointing the finger outward at the way others spend theirs. But frankly, so what? That has nothing to do with the moral question in play, and that is, is it right for us to exterminate other human beings just because we find them inconvenient? And we don't like where they are. In this case, we don't like the fact that they reside in one location and they haven't moved from that location to another. That's the language I've used over and over again to describe this debate. What makes the human being any less human when it's 60 seconds before birth than when it is 60 seconds after birth? All we're talking about right now is two minutes of time. So two minutes of time have elapsed, and it was okay to kill it two minutes earlier, but it's not okay to kill it now? Oh, well, it, it also moved 
two minutes earlier, it was inside the mother's womb, and now it's outside the mother's womb. So that that human being has moved some, I don't know, let's just say 24 inches. It's moved from here to there. So location is an issue in play here. The location of the human being is um, what is going to make it acceptable to kill it versus unacceptable to kill it. This makes no sense. Well, some people are saying, well, it, it isn't a human being until it breathes its first breath, until it ingests air. Well, do you realize that an unborn baby, a preborn baby, ingests air? It gulps in air through the umbilical cord. So it's getting oxygen, it's just getting it a different way. So now you're into this slippery slope that if, it's, if a human being, a living human being, isn't ingesting oxygen the way you think it should, then it's okay to kill it. Well, that would make it okay to consider terminating any human being that needs assistance in breathing. Somebody, for example, in the operating room that has an oxygen mask on because they need assistance in breathing, is it okay to terminate somebody if they can't breathe without that assistance? Well, of course it's not. At least I hope you agree that it's not. So you see the inconsistencies, the logical fallacies, the non sequiturs that are in play in terms of the left's response to the Roe v. Wade decision and the Roe v. Wade debate. Well, after the break, I'm going to share with you a response that a young woman made on my social media platform, Facebook, where she just rattles off a bunch of Bible verses and tries to use that as a point um, to uh, embarrass Christians who believe in the Bible as the basis for our moral judgments. Bottom line is, she doesn't understand what she's talking about. Her exegesis, exegesis is to exegete. Don't mistake the word for anything to do with Jesus. It's not even spelled that way. That's the way it's pronounced. Pronounced, excuse me. That is the way it is pronounced. Exegesis. So that means to exegete, to extract, to exegete, exegete from the document its meaning, its purpose, what it says. So her exegesis of Scripture is terrible. She doesn't understand what it says. She doesn't understand the various different genres of literature that are contained in the Bible. She, had, she doesn't understand the difference between parables and prose, prophecy, prescriptive literature, proscriptive literature, descriptive literature. The Bible has all of these genres of literature, and you need to read literature within the genre that it was written Within the context, context is always king. You don't assume that a poem is irrelevant or inaccurate because it describes things in poetic fashion. Um, you, you don't discount the Bible because it talks about the rising sun. For example, because we all know scientific that scientifically that the sun doesn't rise, that that the that the earth is rotating around the sun. It's not the sun rotating around the earth. You don't discount the Bible and claim that it's inaccurate because it uses poetic language to describe the relationship between the earth and the sun. I mean, this would be crazy. You have to recognize that there is, there's metaphor, there's symbolism, there's poetry. And then we do have prescriptive literature, which is very different than poetry. We have parables, which are very different than prescriptive or proscriptive literature. We, we need to understand that there are descriptive passages uh, prevailing throughout the Bible that describe things that, they, that aren't necessarily 
being held forth as the way to live. I mean, they just tell us the way it was, not the way it should have been or the way we should live today. We, we see this all the time in Scripture, but this young girl that challenges me because I'm applauding Roe v. Wade, and she challenges me with a bunch of Bible verses. She, she clearly embarrasses herself because she doesn't understand what she's doing. I try to point that out. She doubles down and just digs in further and demonstrates that she's either ignorant or she just doesn't care. So let's take a break, and when we get back, I'll share this example with you. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to The Rebellion. Now, before we go further in the show, I want to make one thing very clear. When I talk about metaphor and poetry, when I talk about symbolism in Scripture, when I talk about prescriptive versus descriptive, when I talk about parables and prose, do not hear me saying that I don't believe the Bible is accurate in everything that it teaches and affirms. Absolutely the opposite. I believe the Bible is true. I believe the Bible is inerrant. I believe the Bible is infallible. What I'm saying is this. There are clearly different genres of literature included in the Bible. The Bible contains 66 different books written by different authors, all inspired by God to share with us his immutable, unchangeable rules, truths on how he created us, why he created us, and how he wants us to live. These various different 66 books are written at different times, and many of them in different genres of literature. For example, the Psalms contain uh, many different poems. This is music. It's got rhyme and rhythm and cadence, as I've said. Uh, the Proverbs. Proverbs are written in a given way. These are principles, sometimes, uh, more than promises. Oh, there are promises, too, but we need to read them in context to understand whether this is a presentation of an enduring principle that God wants us to live by. For example, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart. We need to ask ourselves, is that a principle, internal, immutable, unchanging, unchanging principle of parenthood, or is that an explicit promise? Uh, some of you might debate with me as to which it is, but we need to be open to having that conversation. And if you conclude that this is a principle uh, an inerrant, infallible, authoritative principle revealed to us by God through the writers of the Proverbs, then that's not disparaging the inerrancy of the word. You get my point? Now, here's the thing. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's descriptive rather than prescriptive. And I think that's what I want to focus on at least substantially from here on out. Uh, because this young girl that's challenging me clearly doesn't understand the difference. She also doesn't understand the difference in Old Testament covenantal theology, ontology, epistemology, uh, and morality. She doesn't understand the difference between Old Testament and New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant. She doesn't understand the progression from Old Testament to New Covenant. Testament, and she doesn't understand abrogation. Her, her theology, the way she's reading, is more Muslim than it is Christian, and I'll explain to you what I mean by that. 
So when I, when I challenged, and I've shared this in an earlier show, I challenged a young Wesleyan pastor who posted after, after uh, Roe v. Wade. He posted, I, th- I just think this is <laughs> such a silly statement on his part. He posted this on Twitter. This is a young pastor from the Midwest, uh, South Dakota, if I recall correctly. He says this, okay, Christians, we have a choice right now. This political victory for those who are pro-life isn't a victory for everyone. If we are really, truly for all life, let's be for those who have all different perspectives on this issue. And let's truly love like Jesus. Let's be ready to stand for those who are hurting right now and truly be for them. Please, I am begging you, says this pastor, let's choose a posture that is truly pro-life and not just anti-abortion, close quote. Well, you know I picked this apart. I took this pastor to task because this is silly. I mean, (laughs) since when is saving the lives of millions of children considered simply political? Uh, (laughs) this, This guy might want to consider the fact that this isn't just a political victory for you and me. It's a moral victory. It's a ontological victory. It's a victory of life for thousands, if not millions, of young boys and young girls who would have been dismembered, had their heads and arms and legs torn asunder from their bodies without the benefit of, you, of, of even having anesthesia. I mean, this, this is a victory, yes, but it's a victory for these children as much as a political victory for you and me. And this pastor misses that point. Um, anyway, you know I went on and I, I talked about the what I considered shallow and thoughtless response that's exemplified by this guy. Well, I, I posted my response, and one of the followers, her name's Haley. I, I don't know her. I looked at her profile picture. She's a young girl that went to uh, Belmont College, Christian College in Tennessee, and she studied entertainment. Um, she should know better. She, she responds to me, and she says, and I don't have time in the show. Maybe I'll follow up in a subsequent show. But she says, this is some of what she says. If y'all want to follow the word of God instead of picking and choosing what you follow based on personal preference, then you'll need to give up the following. Now, first of all, notice she's not responding to my argument at all. She's just jumping in. to If you want to follow the word of God instead of picking and choosing what you follow, do you see the assumptions there? Wait a second. Wait a second. You're not even addressing my argument. You're not addressing the argument of political versus moral victory. You're not addressing the fact that you've got a lot of children who won't have their arms and legs torn from their bodies while they're in the womb, and you don't even bother to anesthetize them before you do that. You're not responding to that. Um, She says, you're picking and choosing your Bible verses. Well, what part of the Bible did I just pick and choose from? Does, Does that cause you to shrug your shoulders a bit and say, what's she talking about? Well, here's where she goes with this. She says, uh, again, let me, instead of picking and choosing what you follow based on your personal preference, then you'll need to give up the following. Leviticus 19.27 says, you shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. And then she puts in capital letters, no rounded haircuts. Then she goes to Leviticus again. She says, uh, 11.18, chapter 11, verse 18, and Leviticus says this, it's discussing pigs. 
And it reads as follows, You shall not eat of their flesh nor touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you, close quote. She says in capital letters, no American football. Because football was originally... Um, a football was originally a pigskin, so the sport was founded against the word of God. Um, by the way, I don't think she w- wrote this. I think she's just picking, I think she's copied and pasted something that's out there probably on the naysayers, the atheist websites as to what's wrong with the Bible. She goes uh, into more Levitical verses. 1919 says this, You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material that are mixed together. And then she says this, No backyard gardens that have more than one type of plant. No wearing any type of blended materials, i.e. polyester. Then she goes into Mark 10, 9. Chapter 10, verse 9 says this, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. No divorce, she says in capital letters. She's got several others here. Um... Uh, let's see. Uh, Exodus 20. I'm going to go down here. Uh, Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. And then she puts in capital letters. Better not have any pictures of Jesus in your church or home. She concludes by saying this. If you want to follow the Bible, you got to follow all of it. Now, this is a response that is not unusual. But I want you to think about what she's saying. She cites Levitical law, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 11. Uh, um, then she jumps to the New Testament, Mark. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. She talks about divorce there. So she's talking about um, whether or not you can eat uh, pork or even touch a pig's skin, and how that's prohibited in Levitical law. She's talking about how the Levitical law prescribes prescribes, um, a given haircut. And then she's talking about other things which are descriptive. Uh, Some of the verses, for example, might describe some of the atrocities that took place in the Old Testament. She's mixing genres of literature. The, the passage out of Mark is very different than the passage out of Leviticus because the passage out of Mark is the New Testament. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a passage that affirms something that has been taught for the generations, for the centuries, for the millennial. It doubles down rather than abrogates. So it doesn't displace or replace anything that was said before. It doesn't supplant earlier teaching. It actually affirms earlier teaching. So the passage in Mark is very different than the passages that describe to us what the Levitical law was for the nation of Israel. Now, if you understand the Bible and you read it in context, you'd get what I'm saying right now. So Haley has, in all due respect to her, she's demonstrated either profound ignorance or intentional deception in the way she's communicating with everybody in this thread. She takes a bunch of Bible verses and she conflates descriptive as well as prescriptive passages. And in doing so, she's suggesting that there's no difference between the two. And that's just dishonest. So again, you're either very ignorant of how to read, how to read any book, 
let alone the Bible, or you're being intentionally deceptive by cherry-picking, which is what she's accusing us of doing. She's cherry-picking given passages when she knows, or at least she should know because she went to a Christian college and presumably was probably raised in a Christian family and went to uh, a Christian church. She should know that there's an easy way to explain the difference between some Old Testament prohibitions and New Testament freedoms. We see that Jesus himself says that the law was made for man, not man for the law. When Jesus was challenged for eating grain on the Sabbath, for example, picking grain on the Sabbath as they walked through the grain fields, when the Pharisees, the rulers, the Jewish teachers and professors and politicians challenged him, he made it clear that you need to understand why the law was written in the first place. The Levitical law was given, and yes, it was good, but we need to understand the purpose of it. The purpose is the law was given for man, not man for the law, and we need to interpret it accordingly. So the interpretive framework on how you read these things is very important. And also, we see, for example, dietary prohibitions in the Old Testament, which were clearly given for a good reason, because we know that when the Jews left uh, left Egypt, that they were promised that they would get, quote-unquote, none of these diseases if they would practice these dietary codes. So what's the point of some of the prohibitions on food? People were getting sick. They were eating stuff in Egypt that was killing them. Was it causing cancer? Was it causing other diseases? We don't know for sure. But we, what we do know is God promised the Jews that if they would amend, change their, their eating habits, that they wouldn't get these diseases as they were getting them in Egypt. So is it possible that some of these Levitical laws were grounded in that particular, particular reality? They were describing the facts of poor hygiene, poor food preparation um, that, were, that existed at that time in their culture, and therefore they needed to stay away from those foods. Later on, um, as Revelation progresses, Jesus makes it clear that some of these Old Testament restrictions have been set aside. They've been abrogated. Another example would be that of circumcision. It's very clear that the Jews were required to do this in the Old Testament, but that New Testament believers that came out of Greek and Roman cultures, Gentile cultures, were not required to abide by that Old Testament covenantal expectation. There was a new covenant. There was a new covenant within the body of Christ that abrogated that older teaching. That doesn't mean the older teaching was wrong. What it means is that the progress of God's revelation to us is important in the context of that needs to be considered as we're reading these particular Bible passages. doesn't negate anything of the past, but new teaching in the New Testament may abrogate, it may supplant old teaching, and the issue of circumcision is clearly one of those. I could go on and on. The point here in responding to Haley is this. She either doesn't understand things such as prescriptive, descriptive genres of literature, or she doesn't understand abrogation, and she appears to embrace a teaching that's more Muslim than it is Christian, because Muslims would consider abrogation almost backwards. It's the newer passages that are abrogated by the older rather than the older being abrogated by the new. Maybe we need to talk about that in a subsequent show. The bottom line is this. This understanding of Haley's, as well as many others that embrace it, is shallow and misguided, and it demonstrates little understanding of God's teaching, Old Testament and New Testament teaching, as well as the Word of God and what the church has helped 
it to be for 2,000 years. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.